Sports presents the Pick 6 Podcast, featuring CBS NFL writers Pete Prisco and Will Brinson, NFL insider Jason Lockenfora, and host Nick Costos. You want NFL talk? We've got NFL talk. From training camp to the Super Bowl and through the NFL draft, our fearsome foursome has you covered. This is the Pick 6 Podcast. Welcome to the Pick 6 Podcast, everybody. Will Brinson holding it down. we got some guests for you today. Joel Corey, former NFL agent, salary cap maestro for CBSSports.com, and Chris Trapasso, draft expert. Going to talk some winners and losers from the Combine. Chris, works for CBS Sports, too. Um, so we're keeping it in-house today. We're going to break down the franchise tags with Joel Corey and talk about what sort of contract stuff we could be seeing. Of course, the deadline for the franchise tags passed on Tuesday. 4 p.m. Saw Le'Veon Bell get tagged. Saw LeBron's Joyner get tagged. Sammy Watkins is going to be a free agent. Allen Robinson is going to be a free agent. Kirk Cousins will be a free agent. Joel is a former NFL agent himself, so he can actually sort of point us in the direction of what you know what these guys when he sits down, you know, when their agent sits down with them, what what are they going to do? What's their plan going to be? Um, some housekeeping notes: subscribe on iTunes, five star review, rate us, love us. If you leave a review, um, I don't know, you can clown Pete, Jason. They're not on the show and they won't listen to it. So clown them in the review and we'll see if they ever find out. Uh, intro music. We're going to work on improving that. I don't want a dog guy that did it, but I don't like it. So if you've got an idea for something that you'd like to hear for an intro music and you don't want to hear the the whole thing that that guy just said, where he says, we've got this, uh, tweet me at Will Brinson or at Pick6Pod. Uh, follow us on Twitter there. And uh, tweet the conductor at Pick6Pod. He's the man, Biff, the legend behind that. In the meantime, let's go talk to Joel Corey and Chris Trapasso. Break down Franchise Tag Day and take a look at some more combine winners and losers. We will also be back. Uh, Ryan Wilson, longtime friend, longtime podcast buddy, going to join the show for a Friday edition. So be on the lookout for that as well. Subscribe, rate, review. Let's go talk to Joel Corey. Joining us now, Joel Corey. I, I was making up titles before, but senior contract advisor to CBSSports.com seems like a fancier, maybe perhaps a fancier, it's a fancier title than I got. You doing all right, man? Yeah, I'm doing fine. How about yourself? I can't complain. Franchise tag season has come and gone, and that's what we want to talk to you about. You, of course, an agent to the stars in a past life, now a uh, cap specialist and contract negotiation specialist, general you know, football savant, et cetera, et cetera. What, first of all, what are the chances that we see Le'Veon Bell get a deal done, and how do you think that this running back market, I noticed you were tweeting about one of your old clients, Steven Jackson, who got a, you know, got a huge deal from the Rams back in the day. How do you think the running, bar, running back market is going to help or hurt Le'Veon Bell moving forward? Le'Veon Bell was born five years too late. He needed to be born when Adrian Peterson and Chris Johnson are making 13 and $14 million per year as running backs. Right now, the top long-term deal is Devonta Freeman at $8.25 million per year. Uh, my Stephen Jackson reference is 10 years ago, Stephen Jackson signed a deal for more money than that. So that tells you where the running back market's gone. Um, the franchise tag for running backs, unlike most positions, has no relation to the marketplace. So he's actually getting a windfall um, off of the tags. 
they offered him what I thought was a very fair deal last year, given how the markets declined, $12 million per year, 39 to 42 in the first three years. Granted, Pittsburgh's deals are a little unique from the standpoint that they don't do traditional salary guarantees, and he's not going to reinvent the wheel structurally. So if he wants to play in Pittsburgh long-term, it's that type of structure. The problem is he was healthy, went out and had a very good year, so his expectations aren't going to go down. And the fact that Pittsburgh's been negotiating in earnest with him, uh, to me, means they're willing to pay him more than $12 million per year uh, last year. But at some point, there's a walk-away number to me. Uh, personally, I wouldn't do the deal with him, given where the running back market is. I would load him up with an NFL record touches between his receptions and catches, draft somebody fairly early because you can get running backs anywhere. Jordan Howard was a fifth-round pick. He's even a second-round pick. Kareem Hunt, third-round pick. Alvin Kamara, third-round pick. Draft his replacement, as talented as he is, run him into the ground, and let somebody else pay for those years where he's going to have a lot of wear and tear and potentially diminishing returns when he's approaching 30. Wow. That's just me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's – and you can tell that that that's that is what a smart team would do is give him and I think you'll see it you saw it certainly last year they didn't feed him early um I think D'Angelo De- De- Williams tweeted it was like the 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 punishment plan or something like that but then they they obviously gave him a ton of touches late and get him ready for the playoffs load him up on those receptions and keep him going um it, it, it is weird, man. He, he wants to be paid like a running back. He wants to be paid like a running back and a wide receiver, and it's just not going to happen unless he, you know, switches positions and refuses to run the ball. And he's not going to do that because he's very good at running the ball. Uh, another guy that wants to, may want to switch, but not a switch from positions, switch to teams. Jarvis Landry still has the franchise tag. I don't think, and you can correct me if you know something I don't, but I don't think he signed it. I think it's been reported that he plans to sign it, but maybe hasn't yet. $16 million for the Dolphins. What are the Dolphins doing with their salary cap situation? Because they're, they owe Landry $16 million. They just got Robert Quinn in a trade. They're going to owe him, uh, I, th- I think, $11 million in on the t- 2018 cap as soon as the league year opens. They have Indomitian Sue with another huge cap number. Are the, are the Dolphins doing something that we're not recognizing, or are they just being the Dolphins again? It's more being the Dolphins. The Dolphins think they're closer than they actually are, and that's because they made it to the playoffs, uh, not this season, but last season. And they weren't very good. They were a bad playoff team. Pittsburgh destroyed them. So they went all in last year. They're going all in this year. I don't think it's going to make a bit of difference. Um, The problem is putting a franchise tag. I know you don't have receivers because Devontae Parker hasn't stepped up. But a $16 million franchise tag for a guy who averages 8.8 yards per catch, uh, that doesn't excite me. Now, the problem is, and he hasn't signed it yet, he's expressed his his intention is, if you're going to trade him, uh, you're going to want something significant in return. So that means the team that is acquiring him has the privilege of paying. They're not going to give something significant just to rent him for a year. So it's the privilege of paying him like Devontae Adams, $14.5 million per year or more, better structure, and give up something in return. Not for Jarvis Landry. If you're talking about his LSU teammate uh, Odell Beckham Jr., you do that in a heartbeat, but not for this guy who doesn't stretch the field. Um, they're going to have to do a lot cap-wise. Um, they got to restructure contracts. I'm assuming um, – 
the candidates would be like Kiko Alonso, Rashad Jones, who did deals last year. I wouldn't rule out them putting a post-June 1 designation on Indomitian Sioux so they can break the cap hit over two years, so it would be $9.1 million of dead money this year and $13.1 million next year. When you look at the Bears, and they're a team that could trade for Jarvis Landry, they certainly want to get better at the receiver position um, because you know we, we've heard them connected to Sammy Watkins, Allen Robinson, Jarvis Landry. They want to build. They want to do Rams 2.0 and build around Mitchell Trubisky. But one of the things they did that was a little surprising was they transition tagged Kyle Fuller, their cornerback. And for those who don't know, I mean, the transition tag means that you get first right of refusal, but the player can sign an offer sheet from other teams, and you get no compensation in return. The Bears seem to be in this weird limbo with Kyle Fuller because they didn't pick up his fifth-year option. He had a breakout year in 2017, and now they have to transition tag him. Do you think – is there some sort of um, wily veteran move happening here with the transition tag? Is it a play to keep your salary cap number low so you can sign somebody like Landry or Watkins or Robinson? What, what is the what is the what is the goal for the Bears in saving, I think, like, two and a half million dollars by using the transition tag instead of the franchise tag with Kyle Fuller. Well, I think it's because they know that they put the franchise tag on them, that who's going to solicit. No one's going to put an offer sheet on him. It's two first round picks as compensation. That rarely happens anyway, but not for him. Um, What the transition tag allows you to do is let some other team potentially set the market for you. That's what happened a few years ago um, with Alex Mack. Jacksonville put an offer sheet on him. Cleveland matched. They're in a similar position as Cleveland that the way they're shedding payroll, that they're going to have $60 million in cap room easy, even with the franchise, the, the transition tag counting uh, for Fuller. Um, so if someone puts an offer sheet out there, they're going to be able to, to match it because you can't do poison pills anymore. You can't put anything which would increase their cap number and keep yours lower. That stuff went out the window, I think, in 2006 because of shenanigans with Minnesota and and um, in Seattle with offer sheets with Steve Hutchinson and, and Kevin Burleson. Yeah, old, uh, I think it's Poison Pill 76 is Hutch's uh, Twitter handle. I, lo- I like a good Poison Pill. I don't see why we're not allowed to put Poison Pills in contracts anymore. To me, they, they make it more fun. Oh, they're just going too much to the extreme because there was a retaliation because um, Hutchinson's had a poison pill they had to be the highest paid offensive lineman on the team that was never going to happen in seattle because of walter jones and then with the uh, burleson one there was a clause that uh if he played x amount of games in minnesota <laughs> um that he got had to be the highest paid like receiver on the team or something crazy like that and the league was just like no this is violating the spirit of offer sheets, even though it is technically permissible now. So the CBA in 2011 took care of that. Um, no tags getting handed out by the Panthers, the Jaguars, and the Redskins. We'll get to the Redskins in a second. But I think the the Panthers and the Jaguars are, are interesting and surprising. Did you Were you surprised to see Allen Robinson not get that tag from Jacksonville given the sort of the market that he's going to have. I mean, look, San Francisco needs wide receivers, and they have gobs of cap space. Chicago needs wide receivers, gobs of cap space. Cleveland, Lord knows they might just do something because they've got tons of cap space. I wouldn't be surprised if the Jets went out and and perhaps threw some cash at Allen Robinson, um, you know, in order to entice Kirk Cousins perhaps more into into coming. So were you surprised that the Jaguars didn't use the, the franchise tag on Allen Robinson? 
Not really, because he's coming off of a bad 2016 season because of his mediocre quarterback, then tears his ACL in week one. Um, granted, most people come back and they're fine from a ACL tear nowadays thanks to modern medical technology. Jaguars got the AFC championship without him, so it's not like he was some missing piece. And this is with uh, a rotating cast of receivers because practically everyone was hurt. So I have to um, say that's a testament to a former client, Keenan McCardo, who's their receivers coach. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm not all that surprised. The problem with Allen Robinson is he's got to be looking at Devontae Adams going, I'm better than that dude. So he's going to want $15 million or more, and, and the type of structure that's associated with that contract, not the Green Bay-Pittsburgh structure, with like $40 million and $45 million in guarantees, with like 30 first two years fully guaranteed at signing. You want to do that for him right now? <laughs> so he might end up being a one-year prove-it deal guy in the Alshon Jeffrey range, the $9 million, nine and a half with incentives to take it to fourteen. Um, maybe one of these teams is going to be comfortable giving him a player-friendly structure with the uh, torn ACL, um, but that could come back to haunt you. But there are a lot of teams that are desperate, and you only need one. All right, so you're Allen Robinson's agent in a hypothetical scenario, and you're building the book, and you're trying to sell teams on, on what to pay him. What are you trying to get in the market? Would you be pushing? Would you say, hey, Allen, look, you can either sign a depressed deal or you can sign this one-year deal like Alshon Jeffrey did and then break the bank. What, what, would your, what would your selling points be to those teams, and what would you be advising Allen Robinson to do? Oh, I'm like, uh, you're getting the 2015 Allen Robinson. That I think <laughs> had 1,400 receiving yards and I think led the uh, league in receiving touchdowns. I'm like, that's the guy you're getting. I'm ignoring the last two years if I'm the agent and trying to sell that. If um, I'm talking to him, I'm he, he's the one who has to make decisions, not me. So I'm going through the scenario like this is what your worth is when you're totally healthy and you are at your best, and I believe you can get to that point. But if you're risk-averse, then you have to be comfortable signing a long-term deal which will give you security knowing the fact that if you come back and you're the player we both think you're going to be, you're going to be underpaid. So – Maybe there's a way to do a two-year bridge deal or a way the deal can void if he hits certain statistical thresholds, or it's a deal which pays him like a high-end second receiver, low-end first receiver with escalators incentives to go up. And I'd give him the Jeremy Macklin example. Macklin came very close to signing a long-term deal with Philly, which would have been below market. Bet on himself for like $5.5 million on a one. Knocked it out the park after his torn ACL, and then went to Kansas City for $55 million over five years, which for him was great money. Robinson's is better than Jeremy Macklin's ever been. So I'd kind of give him all the information and let him um, decipher it, and then we talk about it and come up with what we think is the best decision based on how he feels. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I guess – it, it's easy to say, all right, there's no wide receivers in the draft, or there's not a lot of, you know, there's Calvin Ridley at the top, but, but, and there's not a ton of wide receivers out there in free agency, but now you have Allen Robinson and Sammy Watkins. I mean, both those guys are 24. So if you were, who that's would, why you bet, that's why you bet on yourself because you're 24. Yeah. So you take the, you take the one year deal, bet on yourself. You're 25 when you hit free agency again. You might hit 
pure free agency, you know, I guess they could use the franchise tag, you, you know, in your, in your new city, but you could negotiate with somebody else. Where would you be pushing if you were the agent for Robinson or Watkins? Where, 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 what locations are you looking at as prime locations? And who do you think will really come out aggressively in that market looking for wide receivers? I'm, I'm looking quarterback. I want a better quarterback than what I've had because one year was great with Bortles. The next one wasn't so good. I would I'd be looking at the Bay Area because of Jimmy Garoppolo because he seems to be the real deal. Um, maybe Carolina. I mean, I'm not sure how this whole North Turner fitting Cam Newton into his style of offense is going to work. Um, I'd be less enthusiastic about Chicago because uh, that's a worse quarterback situation. Um, I'd rather have Blake Bortles throwing to me than um, Mitchell Trubisky because you don't know what he is yet. Um, but yeah, I would have San Francisco circled. Um, but I'd also bring up uh, Redskins as well because you got Alex Smith and they don't have a receiver. I'd bring up also the cautionary tale of the one year deal, Terrell Pryor. It was the right decision at the time to do the one, it backfired. So that's the downside of doing the one as well. So I'd have to uh, factor that into the equation and make my client aware of that as well so he could use that in part of his decision making process. Interesting. I think I think those two guys are going to be, you know, obviously the quarterbacks are, are key to the market, but I think those two guys will be interesting to watch. Um, Watkins, you mentioned Carolina. Yeah, I mean, the ge- you know, ge- geographical stuff can be hit or miss for these guys, I guess. But he, you know, he did play at Clemson. It is near to it is near to Carolina, so you could say a quote unquote hometown team. And then Robinson, uh, for whatever it's worth, from Detroit. I, I don't know if he wants to go back there, but Chicago, not that far away. Um, I think you're right there. San Francisco is going to be a team to watch. What do you think about Andrew Norwell, a Carolina guy who is leaving? Is he like booking it up the Eastern seaboard to go hang out with his pal, Dave Gettleman who drafted him? Is that, is that, does that feel like a done deal in free agency? And were you surprised that the Panthers weren't willing to commit, um, you know, it's tackle money to a guard, but still, you know, a good guard on a team that needs protection for Cam Newton. Were you surprised that they didn't franchise tag him? Uh, well, familiarity brings comfort, so that would not surprise me that he's uh, in New York, and that's probably going to be one of my articles next week, uh, Connect the Dots Based on Past Connections. Um, he, he's, he's, he's doing cartwheels because he's like, back that Brinks truck up, baby. Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised Carolina didn't uh, franchise him after Marty Herney made a comment about not wanting to invest too much of the salary cap into one position, which is something he should have learned several years ago by paying two running backs near the top of the market in a timeshare, which never made sense to me. Um, I think that he's going to be the highest paid guard when it's all said and done, at least temporarily, until Zach Martin gets a deal, because we've seen that play out past two years in free agency, Coleccio Simile. Highest paid guard, and Kevin Zeitler beats him at $12 million a year, $31.5 million overall guarantees. Never had any uh, honors, Pro Bowl or All-Pro. Norwell, um, first-team All-Pro this year. Perfect time to be a free agent when we've seen last year that if you could basically walk and chew gum as an offensive lineman, you got paid a ton of money. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> he's the top guard. He's going to do well. Nate Solder is really the only legitimate left tackle available, and they can't franchise him in New England, he's going to break the bank also. Mm, excellent point. All right, and let's get to the big fish, the large kahuna in this equation, Kirk Cousins. There's like, there's all kinds of rumors out there about whether the Vikings are talking to him, um, what the Jets are willing to do. If you're Mike McCartney, his agent, 
A, are you narrowing down this list of teams as, as has been reported? Um, that would seem, if I'm looking for a bidding war, that's not my move, but I understand that you want to sort of, you know, cut to it and, and figure out who you want to play for and, and get paid. A, are you narrowing down the teams? And B, what sort of contract are you looking for, uh, Joel, in terms of when you're, when you're Kirk Cousins and you're saying, hey, this is what I want. I know, I know you've got an article up on CBSSports.com right now sort of structuring Kirk Cousins, but how would you structure it for the listeners? Uh, one, I'm not narrowing anything down. Um, and that would be uncharacteristic of what I know about Mike McCartney. Um, you want to keep the whole universe as wide as possible, at least initially, because that'll put the other teams at risk. You don't do what Peyton Manning did when he got cut from the Colts. Let's pick a team, then negotiate. Uh, he, you're handcuffing the agent that way. You have the discussion internally about your wish list. All right. Um, all things being equal, I want to go here if the money's different. How much would it have to be different for me not to go to my top team? So you have that discussion, those discussions with your client, but you keep the universe wide initially because you want a bidding war because that's the only way you get some crazy contract that people are kind of like, he, you, you paid that for Cousins? Um, what I've always said uh, that if you got a good quarterback in his prime on the open market, he is going to break the bank. I would have a target price of $30 million per year, $100 million in overall guarantees, and 65 to 70 fully guaranteed at signing. Now, that could go up or down depending upon who's interested and at what level. If I got multiple teams, then that may just be the initial get-in-the-door price, and the deal is going to be more. If fish aren't biting, then you're going to have to make adjustments accordingly, but that Jimmy Garoppolo deal – I'm sure teams took note of that, and they're like, hmm, this guy started five games last year, two in, in um, New England the year before. Cousins, past three years, statistically fared very well, compares favorably to Matt Ryan and Matthew Stafford. Then we know we're going to have to go above that if it's a conventional deal. Maybe do something unconventional, shorter-term deal. Most quarterbacks sign five, six-year deals. Maybe you do a three you get a break on the money, maybe fully guarantee those three years or substantially guarantee that money upon signing. So there's a little way to differentiate that. But you know after Garoppolo that if you're coming in at $25 million per year, you're wasting everybody's time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't, don't even bother showing up at twenty five. I mean, is it like – I mean, I get that. I mean, like, I mean, if you're the agent, I don't know. It just seems weird. You know, you have these actual presentations. I know it's silly season and these offers get going, but I mean, you go, you show up and you say, "Listen, do, I mean, don't you go to everybody? You say, make make us your best offer.' And you go to Minnesota and you say, "Look, get us close to the Jets, and we're going to come here because you've got more going for you." And do you think Minnesota is willing to do that? Um, don't I mean, don't you think? I mean, this is going to factor in the ability to win right now is going to win and, and be successful and be a quarterback who can get to the Super Bowl is going to factor in for Kirk Cousins, right? Oh, yeah, it's, it's going to factor in. But when you start talking apples and oranges money, the whole winning thing goes out of the equation. <laughs> um, so if the Jets are substantially more than Minnesota and then Minnesota is not willing to uh, up the ante, that's going to cost Minnesota a quarterback. Obviously, they're not sold on Case Keenum, or they would have put some sort of designation on him, transition, or franchise. Zimmer didn't seem sold on him during the year. He wanted to put um, Teddy Bridgewater in, uh, but he never had an opening because the way Keenum was playing, 
you can't count on Sam Bradford to do anything, and that guy cost himself a ton of money by getting hurt because if he'd stayed healthy, you got to assume they'd do more than what Keenum did. He was um, NFC Offensive Player of the Week, week one, so he was looking at a $25 million per year or more contract if he had repeated what he did last year. But, yeah, you're going to probably – not initially. man. initially go to Minnesota and say get close. Uh, you're going to keep them on the same footing as everyone else, but as negotiations start to progress and you see where the offers are, yeah, then you're going to probably come back if that's where he wants to go and say, look, <laughs> here's where we are here, ballpark. You're going to uh, puff it up a little bit and see if Minnesota is willing to uh, raise the offer. They've got the ability to do that. They're going to have about $50 million in cap room. I know they want to do extensions with guys like Anthony Barr, Stephon Diggs, um, Eric Kendricks, but they have the ability to also sign Cousins and take care of those guys as well. Going to be fun to watch this free agent market. Uh, transition tags, franchise tags already coming through. Joel Corey joining us. Hey, man, I really appreciate it. People can follow you on Twitter at Corey Joel. I literally just retweeted um, the finance, the key financial benchmarks for Kirk Cousins that he's going to need to hit in free agency. Agents take is the column that you you crank him out left and right for CBS Sports. Really appreciate you coming on the old Pick Six Pod, buddy. All right, thanks for having me. All right, joining us now, Chris Trapasso, as promised. Are you a are you a senior NFL draft writer? Did they did they stuff a senior on your title too, or are you just CBS Sports NFL draft writer? That would be awesome to get that senior title, but because I'm the only one, I, I I'm just the NFL draft writer at this point, so I'll take it. I don't I don't know how they gave me senior. Um, I think <laughs> I think it was because I named um, my son. My Robbie is a junior, and so I'm technically a senior. And so I think there was some sort of paperwork snafu where I was Robert Williams Brinson Senior, and they added the senior onto my title as a result of that. But I ran with it, and I don't care. Um, I'm not yeah, that was smart. That was smart by you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, hey, it's their mistake, not my problem. I'm not going to deal with it. Um, I'm a winner in that situation, much like some of the guys who came out of the combine. God, that's a flawless segue. When you look at Chris um, – the winners from this from this combine and, and we talked about it with with Pete and Jason some earlier in the week. When you look at who's your biggest winner coming out of the combine that maybe isn't a surface level like like everybody knows that Shaquem Griffin had an incredible run and, and made himself some money. Uh, I think Saquon Barkley obviously had a great combine, but who's a winner that really helped himself in your eyes in terms of improving his draft stock with the way he worked out at the combine that maybe people aren't talking about. Um, in, in, in that surface level fashion. The guy I'll start with is Leighton Vander Ash, the linebacker from Boise State. I have to, uh, I have to stop you because I have a question about Leighton Vander Ash. Yes. It feels to me like he is either a. Okay, and I, so I need to know the answer to this. Is Leighton Vander Ash, is he like. Is he a lax playing heiress to an auto. Uh, like a muffler fortune, or is he some sort of German guy who came to America and started playing football three years ago? Because I feel like it has to be one of those two things. Um, he's not a German guy, but he's more uh, toward that side of it. Uh, he's like a small school guy from Idaho that graduated with like 50 guys in his high school. So he, he's definitely, I, I'm pretty sure he's not the heiress or the heir to a muffler fortune. That was it. That was it. I think I was getting caught by Seinfeld. You know, like Paris, the Seinfeld versus the yeah. Theo Henry. Um, holy Moses! This guy was born in Riggins, Idaho. As See? Tim, so the, oh, yeah, I told you. 
Okay. All right. So this is, this guy is, uh, um, he looks like, I'll be honest, when I was doing my mock draft, I mean, I don't know a ton about him, but he, he kind of looks like somebody who's going to be drafted by Bill Belichick. Is that crazy? No, that's not crazy. And they certainly could use some linebacker help. Um, he just did really well for himself, um, not just based on what he did at the Combine, but relative to the guy that he's kind of being compared to. That's a bigger name right now. Tremaine Edmonds from Virginia Tech, you know, a school that's on TV a lot more, playing in the ACC. Um, they're both 6'4 and 250-plus pounds playing off-ball linebacker, which is kind of unheard of. It's, it's kind of in the Anthony Barr, Brian Urlacher. There's, those are really the only two that I can really think of top-level players. Um, he ran 4.65, which is pretty fast at that size. Had a 39.5-inch vertical jump. Um, and had a three cone, which is, you know, the, the ultimate indicator of agility and, and just athletic prowess at 6.88 seconds, which is really fast, especially again at, at 256 pounds. Edmonds set out those drills. He ran four, five, four. So a little faster than Vander Ash had a, uh, lower broad jump. Didn't do the three cone, any of that, um, so I think just relative to the guy that he's being compared to, Vander Esch did a lot for himself um, as just that sideline to sideline, almost oversized linebacker. He showed that he really does have that speed to just play in the middle and get to the sideline on bubble screens and on outside runs. Is he a guy that can rush the passer too? Not really. Um, he wasn't really used in that vein at Boise State. Um, he was really just an inside linebacker. Um occasionally they would blitz him and for as big as he is and obviously as explosive as he is he wasn't that great of a blitzer I thought probably needs to get a little more physical in that area and he's not the best at getting off blocks which when I first watched him I didn't like him because a lot of times offensive linemen would get on him and then the play was over but the more that I watched he was beating uh blockers to the football so that's where he's going to win is, is with that you know four six five forty and the vertical and the broad jump that explosiveness um he's a very interesting prospect who is going to probably be picked after Edmonds but is a very similar player and do you is he somebody that is like can he drop in pass coverage enough right now where he can get thrown into a to an NFL situation and be a three down guy yeah I think so um he didn't have to run with a lot of like tight ends down the seam because they played a lot of zone at Boise State. Um, but as the combine showed, he's plenty athletic enough. And with that three cone, what that says is that he's not this big, tall kind of you know stiff power forward out there. He can actually move a little bit. Um, is he going to be Luke Kuechly right away? Probably not. Um, but he he is athletic enough, I think, to be a three down guy. And at this point, I would be actually surprised if he's not a first round pick. Yeah, I mean, he seems it's because here's the, the interesting thing about this first round, and I think it's being a little we're a little bit distorted from the fact that there's four or five quarterbacks that everybody is talking about, and there are four or five prospects depending on you know who you classify as elite. I think between Saquon Barkley, Bradley Chubb at NC State, uh, Minka Fitzpatrick out of Alabama, Quentin Nelson, the guard out of Notre Dame, between those guys. And the quarterbacks, we, we spend, and this happens every year. I mean, you talk about the top of the draft, but the bottom part of the draft is, at least in terms of the first round, is wide open. I don't think there's more than 15 to 20 guaranteed first round picks, right? I mean, we could see guys sliding in and out of that first round 
all throughout the next month, both in mock drafts, um, depending on the position. But do you think that Vander Esch has solidified himself as someone that will end up going in that first round? Yeah, I do. And, and I would kind of call that, um, phenomenon, almost the Dion Buchanan phenomenon where no one had him in the first round. Um, and then the Cardinals picked him and they're like, who's this safety from Washington state? He's turned into a really good player. I think you're right in that this draft from like picks 20 to 32, um, they're going to be three, four, five guys where some people will have them pegged as first rounders, but there will be a lot of surprising names there. Yeah. And that's, you're right. I mean, spot on with Buchanan because he was 27th overall. I think in that, was it 2014 NFL draft? I mean, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, look, I mean, this happens a lot. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's more surprising when someone like Bruce Irvin goes really early to a team like the Seahawks and, and not like he was out of nowhere, but you know, I mean, it, but it shouldn't be surprising at this point when prospects start to creep into the back end of the first round. Um, anybody perhaps that was a big loser that fell out of your first round or, 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 or dipped a little bit in your, in your, in your prospect rankings based on their combine performance? Um, probably Calvin Ridley. And I've already taken some heat from the uh, a wide receiver for those that don't know. And yes, I think consensus top wide receiver is he, is he your top ranked wide receiver? He, and he's he's not he's not my top ranked wide receiver. I kind of gravitate toward the the bigger outside guys just because they're they're usually so good in the red zone. And if you look at the last five to ten years touchdown production, they're guys Des Bryant, Jordy Nelson, um, Julio Jones that are bigger wide receivers. I mean, certainly Antonio Brown is 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 kind of the outlier there. Um, it's actually Cortland Sutton from SMU, which. We'll get to. Um, he's just a bigger, taller guy. Ridley, though, 6'1, 189 pounds. So he's got a pretty slender frame. Um, he ran a 4.43, which is good, but at that weight, I was actually expecting him to be a little faster. Um, and he had a broad jump in the second percentile among wide receivers since 1999 at the combine. Second. And his vertical was in the seventh percentile. So for someone that's apparently this, you know, super quick, super agile, make you miss type of player, those combine numbers don't really indicate that. Um, one other note, Pro Football Focus only had him forcing two missed tackles last year, which is not a lot if you're going to be that, you know, make you miss kind of yak wide receiver. So I didn't drop him into the fifth round, but you're right. He was, he is, if you were to pull and just look around the internet, you know, he's a trendy pick to the bears at number eight. I just don't think you can pick someone that's that small, that lacks that explosiveness. Um, and he's going to be 24 in December of his rookie year. So just not my kind of wide receiver. All right, so yeah, let's talk. Let's let's talk. Let's dive into this wide receiver class for a minute. And so with Ridley, this is interesting because I think that I mean it's interesting to me because I, look, I mocked him to the Bears. I had somebody on Twitter call me lazy, and I he was like, "Yeah, you went to the Bears. You've been doing it for a month." I'm like, "Well, yeah, the Bears need a wide receiver. Ridley's mm-hmm. the consensus wide receiver. He played at Alabama. He played for Brian Dayball. He played for you know uh, uh, Lane Kiffin, right? Yeah. I mean." Like, these guys, Alabama turns out wide receivers. Okay, pal, leave me alone. They got Amari Cooper. They got Julio Jones. I'm looking at him on for listeners and all. Mock Draftable, uh, MockDraftable.com is a site that does these spiderweb charts, basically that takes the percentiles of bench press, height, weight, wingspan, and, and 40s broad jumps. This this graph is a disaster. I mean, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Like I mean, like his biggest comparison is Herb Haygood 
who was drafted out of Michigan State in 2002, and then Lavernius Coles, um, Farrow Cooper, 79% comp. That's not that's not a compliment, by the way. Um, I don't think, and he didn't he didn't nothing that he did was higher than the 77th percentile. You're right; he's just smaller and shorter with tiny hands, and he's not very agile and not very explosive based on these numbers. And then, yeah, I mean, I think you look at the. I don't this that's crazy. I I'm, I'm so so how would you where would you slot him in this wide receiver class? Cuz I think that the fact of move by you know fly by night draft analyst clown surface level clowns like myself is to um is to to, to to put him in as the number one wide receiver. And I'm starting to get a little nervous here. Yeah, I I still have him in my top 50 in terms of my own evaluations, but I think he's more of a second round guy and that's not saying that I think he's a terrible player. I mean, you know, there have been a lot of second-round wide receivers that have been really good. I think he's kind of in that Marquise Lee, uh, D.D. Westbrook um, kind of mold where he can win down the field occasionally. He certainly was hurt by Alabama's quarterback play, and they didn't really want to pass the ball that much. But watching his film, the Mississippi State game, he made a few guys miss in the open field. But beyond that, he was catching like 70-yard dig routes and trying to escape, and he couldn't. So, and beyond that, there are people that like the, you know, ru- you know, sharp route runner, so to speak. I think that is important, but you need to be able to make catches um, when there's coverage on you in the red zone above your head. He doesn't really play above the rim whatsoever. So to go in the first round, I think uh, he just won't ultimately live up to that. Uh, draft status second or third round I think he can be a good number two or a number three I certainly would not pick him in the top 10 wow yeah you're kind of sell- okay he's old too he's old he's already 23 so all those moves he was doing to get off the line he was doing it against 20 year old 21 year olds I mean and if you look at the history of older wide receiver prospects it's not very good there's certainly some outliers but the majority of the guys that were 23 or 24 based on you know uh, red shirts due to injury or junior college or whatever, they usually don't fare very well. It's usually the guys that, that showed that they could dominate at 19 and 20, like Josh Gordon, Julio. Amari Cooper is was super young at Alabama and doing amazing things in that offense. Um, and Kelvin Ridley is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum there. To put that in context, by the way, um, and we talked about this with Joel Corey, Joel Corey earlier in the show, Sammy Watkins and, and Allen Robinson are 24. So he's yeah. He's several months younger than these guys who have been in the league. I mean, Allen Robinson is has a 1,400-yard season and has missed a season with an ACL and is just yeah. six months older than Calvin Ridley, who's coming to the NFL. That is, uh, that's, that's, that's concerning. And I think that when you look at the production, too, you know, he had that 1,000-yard, 89-catch, 1,000-yard season as a rookie, as a, excuse me, as a freshman with Alabama in 2015. And then to have, you know, to not go over a thousand yards in, in, you know, what is a run first offense, but you know, it is, I mean, you're going to get looks down the field is a little surprising. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm writing down red flags about Calvin Ridley in my show notes for this. And I'm going to spend some time um, digging into the film on him. Cause I, you, you got me a little scared here, uh, uh, Chris, by the way, uh, Chris Trapasso on Twitter. Is it, uh, at just by the name? Yeah. At Chris Trapasso. There you go. People can follow him there. So uh, the, one of the wide receivers you mentioned that is a winner, and we talk about wide receiver factories with Alabama. Maryland's a quiet wide receiver factory. Torrey Smith, 
I know, believe me, I know this. These guys lit up NC State. Torrey Smith, Stephon Diggs, and now you've got DJ Moore as a big combine winner. What did he do to separate himself at the combine, and where does he fit in terms of a mold and a comp for an NFL player? Well, he was kind of the opposite of Calvin Ridley, that he was six foot and 210, so the, the height and the weight were good. He ran faster than Calvin Ridley, 4.42, had a 39.5-inch vertical, um, an 11-foot broad jump, and the three-cone at under that kind of magical seven seconds. So he checked all the boxes with explosion, with speed, quickness, change of direction ability. Um, this guy has cra- a, a crazy uh, college experience that at Maryland, a, another school that had not the not the best quarterback situation, I'll say, um, he accounted for 53.2% of the team's receiving yards last year, which is literally off the charts. Usually if a wide receiver's market share is like above 30%, then he's like really good. If it's near 40, you're in like Josh Gordon, Julio Jones territory. So no, there weren't a lot of NFL caliber wide receivers, I'll say, on that roster. To have a market share of 53.2% is, like, ridiculous. He is what I think a lot of people want to think that Calvin Ridley is. He makes guys miss a lot on bubble screens, after slants, down the field. Um, I've seen a lot of chatter of him, you know, definitely going in the first round. Watching his film, I kind of had him as a third or a fourth rounder. I think now, after just seeing those figures, he's probably a second-round pick. And he reminds me a lot of Golden Tate. That Golden Tate's been this yards after the cast, uh, yards after the catch monster for the last, you know, three or four seasons in Detroit. He's that kind of player, a little bit smaller, but very athletic and great with the ball in his hands. Holy cow. And you look at his uh, spider web. So is it, is it spider, spider chart or spider web? Yeah, spy, yeah, web, I guess. Mock draftable web. Mock draftable web. I mean, basically, if if you don't know this, go look at mockdraftable.com or check. Chris has tweeted him out. I've tweeted him out, I'm sure. But it's a uh, one, two, what is it? Like a, it's like a 10-piece pie that's shaped like an octagon, but obviously with four sides. And if you fill out the entire thing, that would make you a superhuman you would basically be, yes. you would basically be LeBron James. Like it would be yes. fun to see LeBron James do a combine, do combine testing, and see what his web is, um, because he would probably test in the 99th percentile of vertical jump, 99th percentile of of 40 yard dash, 99th percentile of hand size. Um, and so you look at DJ Moore, and he doesn't have a huge wingspan, doesn't have huge arms or or hands, but he's fast, 83rd percentile 40 yard dash. And he can leap 90% percentile vertical jump, 96% percentile broad jump. Do you, I mean, and I, I'd be curious, tweet at us at Pick6Pod, at Christian Posse about Will Brinson. If you're listening to this and you find this stuff interesting, find it boring. I mean, yeah, I mean like, I don't know, like, I, like, no, I mean, like, I don't know, like, do people find these sort of. I think so. No, I find them interesting, but I, I'm, I'd just be curious what our listeners, um, our listeners think. And what, what do you, what have you found? as you've sort of done this and studied these wideouts, like what, what, what indicators are beneficial for a wideout making an improve or making a leap right into the NFL? You know, are there any indicators that you've seen from an analytical or statistical standpoint to guys sort of making the instant impact? Yeah. I think the three cone drill uh, has been the most closely tied to the edge rusher spot, just because that seems like a pretty practical application of, you know, getting around the corner to the quarterback. I think wide receivers that have a very good three-cone time and a, and a good short shuttle time, you know, those are the guys that not even just after the catch but on their routes 
can change directions quickly, create separation. Um, I don't know what the you know correlation coefficient would be in terms of three cone to NFL success, but that's something that I always look for. If a guy has a bad time in the three cone in the short shuttle, it's not the biggest red flag. It doesn't drop him out of the draft, um, but it's it's a little scary. And on the other end, the guys that do have good times in those two agility drills tend to usually be the better players. And that's kind of the all-encompassing thing about Ridley and more. If you're going to bet on Ridley, you're betting that he's an outlier, that that, that he's going to buck the trend. And with someone like Moore, he's a player that usually goes higher than initially expected and usually outperforms where he's ultimately picked. Some interesting comps on here. Cordero Patterson, Chris Godwin, Zay Jones, and then an 80.6% comparison to Andre Johnson. Whew. Yeah, he's impressive. Yeah, that is impressive. What about Cortland Sutton? Um, yeah, I think I think because he played in a um, holy crap, his uh, his mock draftable thing is pretty nice too. Um, he played in that Chad Morris wide open SMU offense. It's e- I think it's very easy for us a lot of times to get lazy and look. I mean, I do this. I think everybody does this. But you look at the Big Twelve offenses and you get lazy about the quarterbacks. You get lazy about the wide receivers, and it's easy to discount statistical production. Um, or, you know, even, you know, just these high octane offenses. What about Sutton makes him uh, appeal to you as an NFL wide receiver? Well, I think that's a good point about those offenses, but I actually wrote an article that came out today about this quarterback class. And in, in one of the subheadings, I had to write like the, the scheme fits, like which quarterbacks would, would fit the best in the West Coast offense, this and that. And really, when you think about it at the college level and it's coming into the NFL, it's hard to find a college offense that is like a traditional, you know, I formation pro style offense. So it's not just Baylor doing it. It's not just SMU. There's like almost, I would say more than half or 75% of the offenses have some spread concepts. And after the Eagles did it in the playoffs, that's kind of where we're heading toward in the NFL. So the whole like intricate route tree stuff, I think that's kind of like a scouting term that gets thrown out a lot. I don't really care about that as much. And Sutton at 6'3 and 218 pounds, dominant, high pointer, like just say, hey, run down the field. We'll throw the ball to you. You can be Des Bryant. And uh, I think we're going to do pretty well on offense. His three-cone time was crazy. It was better than DJ Moore's at taller and heavier, uh, which is pretty crazy. Like I, I was not expecting that from him. But watching his film, he does move really well. He's not just this, hey, throw it up to me in the red zone, Kelvin Benjamin type that that, that has trouble separating after the catch. Um, his combine is kind of in the neighborhood of A.J. Green. Um, A.J. Green was like an inch taller and a couple pounds lighter. And A.J. Green had just crazy long arms and, and um, was a better prospect overall than Sutton. But he's my number one guy because I'm a team big wide receiver, hashtag team uh, big um, uh, wide out. Um, Tag's gonna stick. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. Not. Um, um, yeah, it's just something that I've tweeted out for a long time, just because I love those bigger wide receivers. Um, he's just capable of making those highlight reel catches, and now after seeing him at the combine, he solidified himself as my number one wide receiver. Uh, who else from the wide receiver class stands out to you? Um, actually, you know what? Let's skip the wide receiver class because you mentioned those are the two big winners of wideouts: Cortland mm-hmm. Sutton, Jay Moore. But some yep. of the tight end. This is a, it's an interesting tight end class after, I think, two, two years in a row of kind of, you know, impressive mm-hmm. ends. How does this tight end class stack up? And does Mike Giusecki out of Penn State, did he put on the greatest combine performance you've ever seen? 
At the tight end spot? Yeah, one of them. I mean, like, I always think back to the Vernon Davis combine, which I certainly was not writing then. I was in high school at that point, but that was, like, the benchmark for the tight end spot. Like, that was just a ridiculous combine for a tight end. Um, so I don't know if Gusecki's was there, but it was close. Um, he's taller than 6'5", almost 250 pounds, um, had a 41.5-inch vertical, 129-inch uh, broad jump, which those are crazy figures. I mean, check his mock draftable web out. It's insane. And a three-cone at 6.76 seconds, which if you're under seven seconds, you're in good shape. Um, and it kind of matches with what he shows on film. He kind of just seems like a big wide receiver, not going to block you at all, but just throw it up to him. Apparently, he was a uh, like amazing volleyball player and amazing rebounder um, at the high school level. And we do hear that about a lot of, uh, you know, guys who are ultimately drafted, but apparently he was like on another level. Like could have played D1 at either of those two sports. Um, and it's crazy. I, I uh, just mentioned Vernon Davis. The Penn State, and this guy's got a weird title, Assistant Athletic Director for Performance Enhancement. It sounds like something the NCAA would not like, but apparently it, it is legal. His name is Dwight Galt, and he's been with James Franklin forever. He was with James Franklin at Maryland when they had Vernon Davis and Torrey Smith, Darius Hayward Bay. So he's like been responsible. I don't know what he's doing. Hopefully it is legal, um, but he's just done a great job. Wissaquan Barkley, all these guys. Sounds like he's like assistant Royd coach. I mean, <laughs> that's what it sounds like. <laughs> that's not what he is, but you know, like it's like performance enhancement. Not maybe not maybe not the title you want. Uh, so how I do you, think- how do you slot out Gasecki versus Dallas Goddard? And what are their what are what are their relative Dallas Goddard by the way small school guys South Dakota State I think he's a Jack mm-hmm. right Jacecki um, yep. from Penn State and how do they compare in terms of pluses and minuses for teams that might need a tight end um, Goddard is more physical he's a bit, like a little bit thicker uh, he had he wasn't able to work out at the senior bowl. He got hurt early in the week and, and didn't perform at the combine so I think that was a little disappointing it would have been fun to kind of compare the two so if you want someone that probably has a little more three down ability. It's got it. If you want to just have someone that's basically just like a big slot receiver, like a almost like a Vincent Jackson type. I saw someone throw out that comparison to Gusecki. You pick him. They're probably second round guys. I don't know if Gusecki would have been considered that before the combine, but if you jump 41 and a half inches uh, at six, five with long arms and huge hands, you're going to be a valuable commodity in the NFL. So somewhere in the second round for those two, I think they both jumped ahead of Mark Andrews, who was the guy for uh, Baker Mayfield over the past couple of seasons at, at Oklahoma. He's just not the same kind of athlete as, as uh, those two guys. And uh, some interesting comps in terms of combine performance for Gusecki, Jordan Cameron, David Njoku, Jared Cook, uh, and Evan Ingram out there at 66%. And none, none of those guys are exact, but I think that tells you, I mean, those, those guys to me scream wide receiver type of tight end, right? Like a guy, yes. a guy yes. who's going to be a real red zone threat, a guy who can run the seam, is fast, can get up in the air, and can be dangerous, but probably not going to be in your, in your run game. And I think you're right about the, you mentioned the, the, the pro style. Pro style is a dumb term that people throw around that, that people don't know what they're talking about. Like, there aren't any pro style offenses now that just run the ball. I mean, even Mike Malarkey was, you know, he, he was running ground and pound or, you know, exotic smash mouth. And it's not like he was, you know, I mean, he was, he was being creative with it. Nobody, nobody's out there being bland and vanilla and running the ball. Like, you know, like this I form. So maybe Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. 
But, yeah, I mean, and, like, when you watch the NFL, like, how often do you see only two wide receivers on the field anymore? Like, it never happens. Right. I mean, it's it's, it's like 80% of the time people are in shotgun. So it's, it is weird yeah. that – it is it is weird that people um, that people tend to gravitate uh, towards that stuff. All right, what about another? Okay, I'm, you know, I'm just going to ask you about these. I got two guys that I noticed are on. You sent me actually three guys. You sent me on a loser list mm-hmm. of, of guys who struggled. We'll get to one of them in a second. Arden Key though is interesting because he is he was heading into the season. We would do these. 2018 mocks before the season, you know, before the 2017 season starts. And Arden Key was one of those guys who's a top 10 pick because of talent, but it's off field concerns and possibly bad testing that hurts him, right? Is he, is he in danger of not being in the first round? Yeah, I, I would be almost surprised if he goes in the first and a, a pretty funny CBS related story. I remember in the summer, Pete Prisco tweeted something like, just watched Arden Key. He's an ex-Miles Garrett. And I was like, man, I, I got to watch this guy. And his 2016 film looked like Miles Garrett. Just tall, freak athlete. Looked like he could grow into his frame. He had 10 to 15, maybe even 20 pounds. Just really bendy. And then a lot of those things that you mentioned, uh, injuries early in the year. There were some conditioning concerns that, that he just wasn't really ready to come back when he did come back. Um, and then there was only a, f- a, a few flashes in a few games that I saw this season that he looked like a first-round type of guy. To come in at 6'5 and under 240 pounds, that's like Barkevius Mingo. That's like Aaron Maben to me, that if you're that tall and that thin um, at the outside uh, pass rusher spot, you're going to probably have some struggles in the NFL unless you're this ridiculous athlete. Um, his vertical is not very good, 31 inches. His broad jump was only 117 inches. And then in the three-cone drill, 7.16 seconds, which at that light of weight, I was stunned by that because I thought he was going to crush that drill. Um, didn't run the 40-yard dash. I don't know what that was about either. Um, so, yeah, he's someone that if he's picked in the first round, it's super risky player. Um, and then you factor in all the stuff that we don't really know, like how much he loves football and all that stuff has kind of been thrown out there. Very risky proposition if he gets picked in the first round. All right. And what about Minka Fitzpatrick, a loser on your list? Uh, I think when you watch the film, a guy who can move all over the place, interesting comparisons between him and Derwin James, the safety out of Florida. They're really both defensive backs. I don't think you can call him a safety or a cornerback. Um, but Minka Fitzpatrick, you can move him to cornerback, slot corner, safety. He can play the run really well. How, why was he on your loser list coming out of the combine? Just related to Derwin James, that you're right, they, they both are kind of these hybrid. I would kind of call him a slot safety, meaning like he plays in the slot a lot, and then he plays safety. He didn't play on the outside. He's not a traditional cornerback. But the NFL is kind of gravitating toward those kind of slot safety, so to speak. Um Derwin James jumped 40 inches, had an 11-inch broad jump, um, and ran 4.43 at 215 pounds. Fitzpatrick was only 204 pounds, which is fine. Um, ran slower, 4.46, had a lower vertical jump, 33 inches, and 121-inch broad jump, so almost a, a foot uh, shorter in the broad jump. So just not as explosive as Derwin James, and I think going into the combine, Fitzpatrick was the consensus, you know, first defensive back off the board. But with what Derwin James did relative to his top competition, I think there will be some teams that will slot him ahead of Fitzpatrick. They're both great players. They're both top 10, top 15 talents. But just relative to his top competition, I don't think Fitzpatrick fared very well. Man, Derwin James is, and we keep coming back to these box draftable stuff. But, look, I mean, like, if you go back and watch, so Derwin James got hurt in 2016. Like second game, yeah. 
Yeah, he got hurt in the second game. Didn't didn't play the rest of the season, I don't believe. Had a pretty good 2017, but his 2015 season is is friggin' crazy. When he's a freshman, I mean, he looks like a a future superstar and top five pick. He said at the combine that he's gonna go top ten. I wouldn't be surprised by that. And I, I, we we're joking off air, but um, I accidentally left him off my mock draft last time. I was I was sitting in the 49ers, and then um, I had them take Quentin Nelson instead because he had fallen, and so I, I forgot to put Derwin James back in. I, I I threw him back in there. I do you think that Derwin James? You look at this: 91 percentile vertical jump, 96 percentile broad jump, 82nd percentile. Uh, 40 yard dash. He's in the 70s in terms of height and weight, 80s in wingspan, 80 high 80s in arm length, low 80s in bench press. I mean, this guy is a physical freak who can play all over the place. Comps to Eric Berry and uh, and then Josh Jones out of NC State from last year. And I, I think the Josh Jones thing is interesting because he also got comp to Dion Buchanan. He's a guy who can load the box and and play. Do you have him ranked above Minka Fitzpatrick? Yeah, I do, actually. I have him as my number two overall player Ow. in this class. I have Minka somewhere in the top ten, I think, like number seven or number eight. I think if you're looking for that do-everything defensive back, uh, going into uh, the combine, it was a consensus, like I said, that Fitzpatrick was that you know top guy as that hybrid secondary member. But I think Derwin James can do everything that – Fitzpatrick can do, but he's bigger, stronger, and he's clearly a more explosive athlete. And I think, I believe, your number one prospect is my boy Bradley Chubb, correct? Yes, definitely. Okay, for those who don't know, Bradley Chubb, best player in the draft. Chris is correct in that. Uh, pass rusher out of NC State, going to be an elite player. I, like, I think I think between him and Saquon Barkley and Quentin Nelson, you have three guys that, to me, are going to be pro bowlers at some point in the next in the next three years, assuming they don't get drafted by an idiot team. Uh, let's give out some awards. Sure. It's nothing if not award season. Um, a couple fun awards from the Combine. Cooper Cup Award. Who's the receiver? He can be doesn't have to be short and white and destined for Bill Belichick. But <laughs> who's the Cooper Cup Award winner from the Combine, a receiver that people didn't know that is sort of making a name for himself and can end up making an early impact? Um, I would say DJ Shark out of LSU. Um, he's not the same type of player as Cooper Cup, but he was a, a extreme vertical threat at LSU when LSU quarterbacks could actually get him the ball. Um, he had a great combine, ran a low four threes, had a 40 inch vertical broad jump, didn't do the three cone, but it's okay. Like I wasn't really expecting him to kill it in that area anyway. Um, he just fits a specific, uh, role in the NFL that if a team isn't asking him to, you know, run on bubble screens and, and create after the catch, if they just send him down the field, he can be an instant impact guy right away. That's DJ Chark, C-H-A-R-K. It sounded like you said shark, which if somebody was named DJ Shark, you're going to have to take him in the first round. How early does DJ <laughs> Chark, uh, get drafted? Do you think he's a round two, round three guy? Yeah, round two, round three. On film, uh, he kind of struggles to, to catch the ball at sometimes, uh, kind of like tracking those uh, deep passes. But after that combine and just with, like I said, that specialty that he can provide a team, probably second or third round. Okay. What about the John Ross Award winner, 
And that goes to the man who ran a 40-yard dash and then is going to catch zero passes in his – no, I'm just kidding. He doesn't – you can't predict the future on pass catches. Who's a speedster who's going to get overdrafted based on his 40 time at the combine? That's kind of a tough one. Um, I would say Antonio Callaway. He may not get picked in the top 10 the, in the first round. Uh, he's from Florida. Um, he some, yes, he has some off-field issues. Um, but apparently, and I just did not see this on film whatsoever. He got suspended in the middle of the season last year. Yeah, that that some people that I respect a lot actually were saying, oh, he's so explosive. He's a Percy Harvin type player. He did well at the combine, ran in the low four fours. Um, I just didn't see him with nearly as much elusiveness um, and just creativity after the catch, even in 2016. I mean, he was Florida's best wide receiver. Um, but that really wasn't saying much with kind of how we've seen Florida's program kind of go down the tubes in the last couple of years. Um, so he's someone that seemed to check the box in terms of the athleticism, but I just didn't see it personally. I'm, I'm in the minority there, but I just did not see it personally with him um, relative to what he did at the Combine. All right, and how about the Ali Marpet Award? For those who don't know, Ali Marpet, now I'm forgetting what school Ali Marpet came from. Hobart. Hobart, that's right. I wrote I wrote multiple pieces from the combine about <laughs> Ali Marpet, and they actually did well because people were searching furiously for who is Ali Marpet because he blew up on the scene uh, now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and actually a good offensive lineman uh, can play all over the place. But he, he he showed up at the combine and made a name for himself. Who's the small school prospect that people need to be watching coming from this combine? Going to the other side of the ball, so not offensive line. Sure. Going into the secondary. Um, not as cool of a name as, as Ali Marpet, which is pretty hard to do, I think. Um, but just seems like to fit his position. Perry Nickerson, cornerback from Tulane. Uh, he had 16 interceptions and 31 pass breakups in his career. And watching his film, I mean, that's, was very obvious. He was so aggressive, very aware when the football was kind of getting to him. He ran in the low four threes at the combine and, and no one expected that kind of when I was watching it I was like really four three two four three four like that's crazy it's a smaller corner but he certainly checks the boxes that are important he has a speed to run with receivers and just plays the football so well what's the upside in terms of where he gets drafted because this is this is an interesting cornerback class um, you know, if you throw Minka, you know, if we're going to just say DBs and you throw Minka Fitzpatrick in there, Josh Jackson from Iowa, Denzel Ward from Ohio State, Isaiah uh, Oliver, Colorado, Mike Hughes from UCF, who I think did, had a really nice combine, Jer Alexander, but I think he got, wasn't he hurt in 2017? Am I, am I wrong about that? Yes. At Louisville? Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot, you know, MJ Stewart's a guy who's been thrown out there. Where does Perry Nickerson fall um, on the on the draft board? Well, I think Marpet ultimately went, what, second round, um, just after his combine pro day, something like that. So I don't think Nickerson is going to move up the boards that much. But when he's the, the classic, I need to go back to the tape and watch him after running 4-3-2. Um, and I already had watched him going into the combine, so I really liked him. Um, I still think he'll ultimately go somewhere on day three and end up being one of those just feisty slot corners that you are – Surprised that he's constantly making plays on the ball, and he's certainly not going to get beat deep with four three two speed. Yeah, I think um, yeah, Marpet went in the. Uh, I was trying to see. So Marpet, second, I'm pretty sure. No, yeah, it's the second round because um, they had Donovan Smith. They drafted mm-hmm. Jameis and then paired him with two offensive linemen in Marpet and um, and Donovan Smith. And I think yeah, that this is right. They actually traded up into the second round uh, with the Colts in order, and they gave up their. 
their uh, their third rounder, the the Buccaneers did in order to get more pets. So they were they were very interested in them. They haven't been they haven't shied away, and uh, it ended up being a pretty good pick. All right, we didn't. Uh, if you if you all right, we I don't want you. Does Mike Jacecki, the tight end out of Penn State, get the Mike Mamula Award? I know we, we who like who who was the biggest beast in terms of combine workout? Doesn't need to necessarily bust at the NFL level. Who who like. Who or it could be Saquon Barkley, could be could be Bradley, could be Quentin Nelson, could be anybody. Who you came out of there, you're like, man, that dude is a workout warrior. Josh Sweat from Florida State, edge rusher. Uh, he was like a former number one overall recruit in the country by some sites, um, and never really lived up to the hype at um, Florida State, but was six four, two hundred and fifty one pounds, uh, ran a forty at. Four five three, which is ridiculous at that size. Thirty nine and a half inch vertical over a ten foot broad jump, um, and that's really what I saw in film. All that I saw from him that he does have burst. He is athletic. Doesn't really use his hands well. Can't really disengage from blockers. I think if he gets with the right defensive line coach, maybe they could teach him that. But usually, if you come into the NFL and you can't use your hands, it's hard to all of a sudden be really good with them against NFL offensive tackles. So I think he'll have a, a, a good career, and he'll probably go earlier than he would have before the combine. But he's not someone that I think really matches that athleticism on film. Gotcha. And finally, the Orlando Brown Award for the first-round prospect who fell out of the first round with the worst combines in memory. Does anybody, anybody stand out to you as a potential Orlando Brown Award winner? No, I would just say Orlando Brown because he had – an epically bad combine. Uh, I, I actually felt bad for him, like watching him. And he's he said in the media day before he worked out, like I'm gonna run really slow and I'm not going to test very well. I don't know if he like didn't prepare for the combine, didn't think he had to, didn't have the resources to. I don't know. Uh, talking to Pete at the combine, he kind of felt the same way. He goes, there were some like family issues. His dad played in the NFL, passed away. Um, so, and, and everyone, even Baker Mayfield was like, this guy's a great offensive lineman. I liked his film. I, I didn't see him lacking, especially relative to his size, uh, movement skills and certainly not strength. He didn't get beaten by a bull rush in any of the film that I saw. Um, and he's so long that, Outside rushers have like five miles to actually get to the quarterback once they get around him. He's almost assuredly not going to go in the first round now, but I think wherever he gets picked, he has the size and the length to be maybe a right tackle, kind of be a uh, Phil Lodeholt type of guy that's just going to dominate people up front. But yes, he had one of the worst combines ever. Yeah, and I mean, look, you can't, here's the thing, you can't use a first round pick on that guy. And then have him not work out and have people say, you watched the combine, right? Like you saw, <laughs> yeah. So all what happened in the combine and you still picked him and it didn't work out. It's weird. It's just weird how that works in the NFL. I mean, you, you'll just get dogged for it and, and you'll end up uh, paying the price. All right. Chris Trapasso, that is, uh, that, that's it, man. You've probably got to go pick up your kid. I got to go pick up my kid. <laughs> hammered out a bunch of good draft stuff. Thanks for joining. This is not, this will not be the last time, uh, we have right. on. People can follow you at Chris Trapasso on Twitter. Follow the podcast at Pick 6 Pod. Um, I'm at Will Brinson. Subscribe, rate, five star. Uh, thanks, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Will.